everyone and thanks for tuning in again to the podcast Murder Most Gruesome. Today I've got a special guest star today. Would you like to introduce yourself? Hi, I'm Grace. I'm Avon's daughter and I am learning criminology in college. Yeah, so I thought it would be lovely to have Grace on the show as a guest star. And you not you don't know this case that we're going to cover today, do you Grace? No, I'm not aware of it. Thanks for tuning in for another podcast and we really appreciate the support. And today's episode has some trigger warnings for listeners and deals with subjects such as child abduction and has adult themes that won't be suitable for all audiences. The case we'll be covering today is one of the most notorious missing persons cases in Australian history and it's a disappearance of the Beaumont children. So that's right, more than one. The case is every parent's worst nightmare and one of Australia's longest missing persons cases. So on a hot summer's day, even given Australia's weather, it was really warm this particular day, on the 26th of January, 1966, Jim and Nancy Beaumont's three children, so there were nine-year-old Jane, seven-year-old Anna, and four-year-old Grant, so two older girls and a boy, boarded a bus to nearby Glenelg Beach in Adelaide, and then disappeared off the face of the earth, never to be seen again. I feel like I have heard of this before. I feel like I remember the whole bus situation, but that's all. Right. It is, it's, it's one of the cases that really interests me. So I might have mentioned it to you or talked about it. I think parents of, you know, as a parent myself, it, it's, it's just your worst nightmare, something like this happening. So it was Australia Day and a bit of a history lesson for people who are not from Australia, including me and Grace. It is the National Day of Australia and it's observed annually on the 26th of January and it marks in, marks the 1788 landing of the First Fleet and the raising of the Union flag by Arthur Phillip at Sydney Cove in New South Wales. Now, in present day, Australia celebrations aim to reflect the diverse society and there's a lot of community and family events happening. Now, this becomes important um, in the investigation because it's a marker for people for what they were doing that day, for remembering what they were doing on Australia Day. So it's easier for people to remember where they were, what they were doing, what were happening. It was really hot. Obviously, it was a national holiday, so they weren't at school and they were desperate to cool down. And they persuaded their mother to let them take, take a five minute bus ride from their home in Somerton Park down to the beach. Now, in modern times, and I think Grace would agree, I don't think I'd have let you go on a bus at nine with your seven-year-old brother. Especially, yeah, not on my own. No, no not on your own. But I think it was a different time. Yeah. Older siblings looked after the younger siblings and did things with them. There, were, there, there wasn't the things in, in the home to entertain you, like all these games consoles, which is not a bad thing. So the mother agreed on the understanding that they returned on the midday bus. So just after 8.30 in the morning, the children walked along Harding Street with all the, the things they needed for the beach and went to the bus stop on the corner. Nancy Beaumont waved goodbye to them from the front gate. Now, when they hadn't returned by 2pm, the mother was getting, starting to get really worried. The buses were every two hours and they hadn't returned on the midday one, as they were supposed to. Now the 2pm bus had come and gone and there were still no children. So she's really, as you can imagine, as starting to panic and worry where they are they weren't they and you've not grown up in a 
uh, a, a child like this, he didn't have mobile phones, it could ring them and ask them where they were mm. or message them. So her husband returns home, I think he'd been on a business trip, so he returns home just after three o'clock in the afternoon and by this point, as you can imagine, she's frantic. And they begin to look for the children themselves. The kids had previously do, uh, got, done this before, gone to the beach unsupervised. Mm. Although not often and only, they'd only just started recently. And Jane had actually learned all the bus routes as she was so desperate for her mother to let her do this, to let her take her siblings. Now, there was something made of a comment that Anna, her seven-year-old sister, had said a few weeks previously to the disappearance saying that Jane had got a boyfriend down at the beach. But a mum a mum just brushed it off as one of the the things kids say. I think and we'll come back to it later in the story, but I think, you know, this might have a bit of Importance. A bit of importance of why she wanted to go get down to the beach, especially with without getting down without her parents looking over her shoulder. So uh, they drove, Nancy and Jim get in the car and they drive down to the beach um, to try and find the kids themselves. So he's shouting. I mean, you can imagine as you're driving down to the beach, all the things he's thinking, uh, you know, have they lost the bus money, have they started to walk, have they lost track of time, have they just got made, you know, made friends and not realised at what point of day it is. So he goes down to the beach, he combs the beach, he's shouting the names, but there is no sign of the children. So Nancy and Jim then start calling round to the children's friends in the neighbourhood, and when this didn't turn up anything, they finally report the children's disappearance to the Glenelg Police at about half seven that night. And this starts the longest-running missing, missing person case in Australia's history and became one of the most talked-about and sensationalised stories in the country. And even now, we're talking about it 50-odd years later in a different country, a different continent. At first, the worry was that the children had maybe drowned in the sea or got into trouble in the sea or they'd gotten lost or fallen from one of the cliffs, nearby cliffs. So over the next couple of days, the largest land and sea search for missing persons was mobilised. So police, the army, the navy, oh, wow. the air force, thousands of civilian searches. Because as you often find with events like this, people, locals volunteer. That you know, a lot of them parents themselves they want to they want to find these kids because obviously if they're injured, the sooner they're found, the better. Mm. So the shoreline and the seaside towns are all searched for a distance of 30 miles south of Adelaide. The sand hills near the beach and among the rocks at the base of the cliff in case it fallen off the cliff, they had a really intensive search, nothing found there. They searched stormwater drains that opened out onto the beach. Sewage pipes, police divers combed the waters, well, dark waters of a nearby boat marina as there was a report made to police that a, a witness had seen the children there. There also was a lot of new houses being built and foundations laid at the time. And police dug a lot of these up if it looked as though the earth had been freshly disturbed. They had police cadets digging these up, search parties and ordinary citizens looked to, but nothing was ever found. When the children hadn't been found by Friday the 28th of January, which is two days later, police start to doubt their initial theory that the children have had an accident. 
Mm. Information started to trickle in to the police that the children had actually been seen with a man whilst at the beach. So they'd got to the beach, they'd been at the beach, and I think there was quite a few locals there, so there were reliable sightings. So a lot of witnesses saw them and saw them with this man, but they weren't they weren't aware of what they were seeing at the time, as often is the case with these things. Yeah. How many cases do you do we read about or hear about where somebody sees something but doesn't realise what they're seeing at that particular time? And often that person then is full of guilt and remorse because they think, if only I'd have done this, if only I'd have questioned that. The first witness, a 74-year-old local woman, said that she'd seen a man playing with the children on the lawn of Collie Reserve at the beach between about 11 and 11.30. The younger girl and the little boy were jumping over him as he laid on a towel on the grass and the older girl was like flicking a towel at him. He was also seen shepherding the children away. Now, her description of him was... He was in his late 30s, he was six foot one inches tall, he's got a slim build, a thin face, light coloured hair, he was suntanned and he was Australian. He wore navy swimming shorts and had which had a white stripe down the side. And now at one point he actually walked up to people nearby and asked if they'd seen anyone touching their belongings as the children's money was missing. Not much more is made of this in when I've done my research, there's not much more made of this. But do you know something? When I read this, what I thought was, has he taken the children's money himself? And therefore it would be a way to maybe get the children to go with him. For for example, you know, like a lift. Yeah, I'll give you. Don't worry, don't worry. I'll give you a lift. I'll drop you off. So, although that's never, it's never talked about really. Again, that piece of information. Now, at some point, witnesses observed the man go off and get changed in a public changing rooms, whilst the children waited for him outside. So, I think it all seems very pleasant. Isn't it's not by mm-hmm. force. It's not being threatened. They're not being threatened at this point. What one of the witnesses found quite unusual, though, is before going off to change, he'd help the children get dressed. He dressed the other two children and also helped Jane dress, who was nine-year-old, which the witness found was odd because she seemed, and she was old enough to be able to dress in, dress herself, which makes me a bit icky, that part. Yeah. Police theorised that the man had befriended them on previous visits and had maybe groomed them. So is this her boyfriend? Yeah, well, that's oh. that's the theory. That's what the police, you know, that's what police suspect that they've actually, when they've been going, I think they've gone a few times, I think the dad had dropped them off on some occasions and they've met this man before. They seemed very familiar with him. And I think they weren't very, they weren't out, outgoing children that talked to anybody. So they, they, they suspect he, he'd befriended him, they knew oh. him before, whether it had been arranged I don't know, which sheds new light onto Jane memorising the bus timetables. Yeah. You know, wanting to like meet her boyfriend or meet this this friend again. So the group walked off together after getting dressed uh, from the beach about 12.15. Now, about two and a half hours later, another witness saw the man and the children and the man was carrying an airline's bag, similar to the one Jane had been carrying that day. So there's a lot of, quite a few witnesses there's quite a few witnesses have seen them throughout the day. Their parents describe the children as being shy and the witnesses say that the children were really comfortable with this man and that what we've met Anna mentioning about Jane's boyfriend, 
police did think that they'd been groomed. And you have to understand, this is a time where people didn't really understand what paedophiles were. It wasn't yeah. talked about, it wasn't talked about in school. They don't understand as much as we do today about the concept of grooming. Now, there was a sighting by a postman, and now he initially said that he'd seen the children alone and walking hand in hand about three o'clock, about five to three that afternoon, yeah. in the direction of their home, and you know, heading away from the beach. And police didn't understand how, how responsible children who were late home would be walking so unconcerned, holding hands and laughing. But the postman contacted the police after a couple of days and he revised his statement saying he, he actually now believed it was the morning he'd seen them. Yeah. So later that day, the children were seen at a local bakery and the shop assistant, and I think he'd served them frequently and, and knew them by sight and knew their orders because uh, obviously they were local and went in there frequently. Yeah. Now, he thought it was odd that they ordered a meat pie. And Jane actually asked, Jane went in and ordered the meat pie and I think she ordered some pastries and she asked for the meat pie to be wrapped in a separate bag from the other items. So suspicious. And what was also unusual that she paid with the one pound note, which was a lot of money at that time. The Beaumont children were usually given just enough money for the bus fare and snacks. So they had obviously been given this money by someone else. Now the shop assistant had seen them with a man, but he was waiting outside while they were being served. Um. Another sighting of the children was about half one. The father of one of their friends was driving past and saw the children with three adults. He recognised one man who often went to a racetrack, but the other two adults were unknown to him. One was a blonde male and a woman wearing a blue and white dress. Now he reported this to the police, but they'd been inundated with lots of tips and I don't think they ever followed up on this lead. And indeed, it's never mentioned anywhere else about yeah. them being someone else, them being another person, another woman. Now, a composite sketch was drawn up from the descriptions that witnesses gave, but nothing ever came of this either. So the sightings of the children that day end here. There were other sightings reported up to around a year after they, they went missing. Now, several months later, and I don't know how, why she waited this long, a woman came forward to police saying that on the night the children disappeared, she saw a man accompanied by two girls and a boy enter a house next to her that she actually believed to be vacant at the time. Now, later that night, the woman saw the boy walking alone down the road and the man running after her and catching him. Next day, the house was empty again and she didn't see the man or the children again. In November, so about nine, nine months later, a Dutch clairvoyant called Gerard Crosset, Crosset, I'm not quite sure on the pronunciation, claimed to have seen the Beaumont children and that they were buried in a warehouse in the area. Now, he actually flew over to Australia and locals even raised the $40,000 to excavate the area. And this process took nearly a year to excavate this warehouse. But in the end, authorities found nothing at all. And all this was done while television cameras were filming as well. Oh, so, no. yeah. Now... March 1986, so about 20 years later, police found three suitcases stuffed in a residential rubbish bin 
These were stuffed with newspaper articles about the children's disappearance with lines and headings crossed out and comments written in red ink, for example, not in the sand hills, in sewage drain, one such comment read. This turned out to be just another false lead as it was the work of a citizen, an amateur sleuth maybe, who had followed the case for years and her relatives had simply just thrown these out when she'd passed away. Now, I'm going to get on to the suspects now. And there's a few suspects, and they are not they're not a bunch of nice people. These people, they're they're all they've all committed crimes against children, uh, previously or or before the abduction or after. <clears throat> now, the first one I'd like to talk about was a man called Arthur Stanley Brown. He was born in 1912 and lived until 2002. Now he was an Australian man. And he was charged with the rape and murders of Judith and Susan Mackay in Townsville, Queensland. Now, we will be covering this case in the next couple of weeks as it is a very interesting case. And suffice it to say, he was a very disturbed man. He's quite a interesting, I don't know, interesting is a word, but it was, it, was, it was an awful man. And he did some really odd things in his life. As I said, he was accused of murdering Judith and Susie, uh, Susan Mackay, but the jury failed to convict. And I think at this point it was really old. They failed to convict, and then he was deemed to be too senile to stand trial. Now, he is suspected of other child abductions, including one from a public place, which bears similarities to the Beaumont children going missing from a public place, the beach. He resembles the identikit or the composite sketch of the suspects, both for the Beaumont children and the two children that were kidnapped from the Adelaide Oval. Now, no employment records could be found for him that could trace his movements around the key dates. And some of the records, he worked for the government, he was in a lot of the buildings. Some of the records may have been destroyed in the 1974 Brisbane flood or because Brown worked in government buildings, he had unrestricted access um, to a lot of the, uh, different departments, a lot of different officers, and he could have destroyed his own files. Mm. Now, he was 53 at the time of the Beaumont children disappearance, which doesn't, doesn't match the description of the age of the subject, which was in his 30s. Now, Harry Phipps, he's our next suspect. Now, he was a former owner of the new Castellay factory, and his grandson, this gets, it's a bit complicated this part, but his grandson came forward a long time after the disappearance and saying his dad saw, so the, his grandson said that his, his dad had seen the grand, Beaumont children at his home the day they disappeared. And I think he was a kid at the time as well. Now, Nick Phipps, the grandson, told reporters and police that his father watched the children walking alive before being carried out. He said his father. Uh, he says his father was in a treehouse and he saw them come in and get taken out and put in the back of a Cadillac. He said that the children were then taken to the new Castellay factory and put into a hole. Now I think that's what his, his own father had said. His grandson described described the dad, well the granddad, as a very violent man who molested his dad from a young age. Now, in 2013, two brothers came forward and also told police that when they were young boys, they would do our jobs for cash and um, at a factory um, owned by Harry Phipps. And he, he'd asked them, on Australia Day 1966, he'd asked them to dig a ditch on the property. 
Now, this was excavated that year. So in 2013, it was excavated. And also again in 2018. But they only found animal bones. Oh. Phipps's own son claimed he abused him and that he saw him with the children. And another thing that apparently Phipps used to have a lot of £1 notes, used to hand them out. And his house at the time was just a few hundred metres away from the beach. So I think he is one of the main suspects. He was never charged, obviously, but I think of all of the suspects we're going through, that is that is one that I think the thing that's most likely to have done it. He fits the age range. Um, we've got that statement from the grandson, but that's like hearsay, so it can't really be used. Um, right. So next suspect is Bevan Spencer von Einem. Now he was born in 1946, so would have been 20 at the time of the disappearances. Now he was sentenced to life imprisonment in 1984 for murdering Richard Kelvin, a teenager. Now unsurprisingly, von Eymann has always refused to cooperate with investigators about his connections to other murders. They think he did murder other people. During their investigation into him, the police heard from an informant that he had had a conversation with Von Eymann where he boasted about taking the three young children from the beach, took them home to conduct experiments on them, performing, quote, brilliant surgery on each of the children and connected them up. It's like, like as in he sewed them together. That's what I think, yeah. And one of the children had died during this so-called surgery and he'd killed the other two and then dumped the bodies in the bushland south of Adelaide. He did apparently resemble the identical pictures of the man on the beach that day. He also implicated himself in the Adelaide Oval abductions, which was another notorious child disappearance case. Now, he has never been ruled out as a suspect. He was known to visit Glenelg Beach to, quote, perv on the changing room and had a reputation as being preoccupied with children that was younger, uh, preoccupied with children. Now, he was younger than the identified suspect for about 10 years. The children that he abused were older than the Beaumont children. Now, James Ryan O'Neill was sentenced in, uh, to life in prison for the murder of a nine-year-old boy in Tasmania, and he's reported to, to have told acquaintances that he was responsible for the Beaumont children's disappearances. Now, although he claimed to investigators he had never visited Adelaide, his work in the opal industry... Do you know what I know, opal? Isn't it like a gemstone? Gemstone, yeah. So he worked in that industry, and at the time, it, he, he would have been required to visit a place called Cuba Pedi, which produces lots of the Australia's opals, you know, that's... You know, the, a lot of the opals are found there. So he would have had to... It's, it's unbelievable that if he worked in the opal business, he wouldn't have visited that place. And to get to that place, he would have had to drive through Adelaide. However, he was discounted as a suspect. Mm-hmm. The next one, Derek Ernest Percy. Now, he was born in 1948 and a convicted child murderer. Now, he's believed to be a likely suspect in a number of other unsolved child murders. Um, his insanity plea in 1969 murder of Yvonne Tuohy was partly based on his suffering a psychological condition that could prevent him 
from remembering details of his actions, so he, he couldn't remember some of the things he'd done. Now, are you supposed to have indicated that he believed that he might have killed the Beaumont children as he was in the area at that time, but he had no recollection of doing so because of his illness? Now, in 1966, he would have been 17-year-old. Oh. Yeah, and therefore, too young. It's about half the age of the, of the witnesses' descriptions. And now, he didn't have a car at that time either. So... I would have found it being quite... Would there not have been more sightings of the children if they'd have had to walk mm, somewhere else? So I think he was... Um, you know, all those things added together. I don't think he was considered a serious suspect. Now, he was also in prison from 1969 until his death in 2013. So he couldn't have been responsible for the Adelaide Oval abductions, which they think is likely to have been committed by... Uh, the same person. Now, Alan Anthony Munro is the next person on our list of uh, amazing people. They've certainly got not. I certainly want to uh, share a table at a restaurant with them. So he, um, a man called Alan McIntyre, who himself had been investigated by police and cleared of the involvement in a Beaumont case, gave a statement that this Alan Munro a man he'd known since 1966, and he was actually, by the 2015, Alan Munro was being sought by the Southern Asia, Southeast Asia in connection with child abuse incidents there. Um, so he's, uh, this Alan McIntyre says, Alan Munro came to his house with the children's bodies in the boot of his car. Now, McIntyre's children said that they saw this as well, and their father initially mistook Anna's body for that of a boy due to because she had a short haircut. Now, the man in question was later identified as businessman Alan Munro, a former scoutmaster who had pleaded guilty of 10 child sex offences dating back to 1962. So for these crimes, he was given the harsh sentence of 10 years. That's sarcasm, by the way. <laughs> And he was actually eligible for release in 2022, so I'm not sure whether he's out now, but I um, hope not. In June 2017, Adelaide police detectives were given a copy of a child's diary written in 1966. Now, this allegedly places Munro in the vicinity of Glenelg Beach at the time of the Beaumont's disappearance. He was convicted of abusing several children, including one of the McIntyre sons, person who come forward to police about him and this son was actually a contributor to the diary so I'm not, I'm not quite sure I can't find in any of the research what this diary has in it now he so Monroe was previously investigated by police but no evidence has ever been found that he was involved in the Beaumont case so there are main suspects now as is the case with anything like this, there's always disturbed people in this world wanting to make people even more miserable. Now, two years after ch children disappeared, their parents, the parents received two letters off supposedly Jane and one also written by a man who told the parents he was keeping the children. Now, the postmark on the letter was 
Dandenong, Victoria. Now, in Jane's letters, which police at first thought did look like a handwriting, she described a pleasant existence with a man who was keeping them. Now, in the man's letter, he said he had appointed himself guardian of the children and would hand them back to the parents and gave a meeting place and a time in this letter. The Beaumont parents turned up to this meeting place. They were followed by an undercover detective, but nobody turned up, nobody was there. A while later, a third letter arrived, again supposedly from Jane, saying that the man had seen the detective and kept the children as the parents had betrayed his trust. No more letters were received from either the man or the children, or supposedly the children. Now, in 1992, these letters, so nearly 30 years later, these letters were forensically examined and they were classified as a hoax. A fingerprint was found on one of the letters and was traced back to a 41-year-old man who was at the time a teenager and he admitted to writing letters as a joke. Now... He wasn't charged with that as so much time has elapsed. Now, I don't, th- I don't know whether that was statute of limitation run out. I'm not sure, but he was never charged with, with writing the hoax letters. So, in the aftermath of the disappearances, the parents initially stayed at their houses. Nancy, the mum, she didn't want the children coming home, finding them not there, and, think- and just, she just said it would be dreadful if they turned up at home and the parents weren't there. And she, she spoke about this in interviews that she's done since. The Beaumonts always co- cooperated with the police while exploring every lead. For example, you know, if there'd been a lead of an abduction by a cult or whether there was a new burial site suspected. Now, one thing they didn't support, however, was when newspapers did an age progression on the children's photos to see what they'd look like today. They do that sometimes in crimes, don't they? Yeah. Can you think of one that they've done it in? Not really. I th- they've done it with Madeleine McCann, haven't they? A young girl that went missing from uh, Portugal mm. in uh, 2006, 2005. Around about that time, they did an age progression photo there. But I think that was done with the support of the parents. But the parents didn't want to see these photos of what they'd look like today. But the newspapers went ahead and did it and printed oh, them anyway. Sure. So the parents eventually divorced and sold their home. I think they eventually came to terms with the fact that the children would never be coming back. Although they always kept the South Australian police apprised of their new address, um, as the case, even to this day, remains open. Now, Nancy died age 90 on the 16th of September 2019 in a nursing home. And Grant, the dad, died in Adelaide on the 9th of April, 2023. So I think it's just such a long time to live with what's happened and to live without your children. Because don't forget, that was all their children gone in one yeah. go. One Sorry, day, one what? morning, you've got three children who wake up and excited having breakfast and then you're never to see them again. Now, the case remains open to this day, so I think it goes without saying, if anyone has any information relating to the Beaumont children's disappearance, to contact the appropriate police authority. And there is actually a £1 million reward for this for information leading to... The killer. To the killer, to the discovery of the children or the, bod- the bodies, but there's a £1 million reward for information. I'm not quite sure to be honest. It's a very interesting case and it's also very surprising how like there's been no 
leads or anything or not even like come close to finding who it was i mean i know they have all these different suspects but there's no yeah direct answer and imagine and i suppose if they didn't have any bodies to find dna off it was just like they disappeared into thin air now um we'll be some of the some of the suspects we will be covering their cases because there was one we brought up the Adelaide Oval and that is a very similar case mm. of two girls being and and the the you know the audacity of this man to walk off and be hanging around and and be seen by witnesses playing with the children it really gives you the chills of how confident he was you know, it's being seen with the children. And there was another case that I'd laid over, and we've mentioned this in the podcast, and we will be covering that in a few weeks' time. And that's a very, very similar case. Um, a lot of similarities uh, to the Beaumont children case. Okay, well, thank you so much for listening to our podcast. And remember, you can follow us on all the social media, Murder Most Gruesome podcast, um, on Facebook, Murder Most Gruesome. And if you'd like to email us any of your spooky stories, we've got a few in. We've asked, we've asked this over the last couple of podcasts. Now, we've got some really, really good stories been sent in by our listeners. If we could, if you'd like to send yours in, that would be brilliant. And the email address is murdermostgruesomepodcast at gmail.com. So... I think that's the that's everything for today. So it's goodbye from me. And goodbye from me. Okay, thank you so much for listening and thank you Grace for being our special guest. Thank you.